power of your spirit. Amen. All right, thanks, Dan. You can have a seat. And I'd like to invite our kids to head upstairs to be with our team in Redemption Kids. Uh, so they're going to have a great morning. They're actually going to join us back at the end of the service uh, to see our friends baptized. It's going to be an amazing time for them as well. Well, let me introduce myself. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as the lead pastor of Redemption Hill. So thankful you could join us today. And uh, if you're new with us, we would love for you just to let us know that you're, what's up, Tony? Tony, give me a shout out right there. Just give me a what's up. So I haven't seen Tony, so I'm just going to, Tony, love you, brother. Thank you for being here. Um, but yeah, if you're new and I don't know your name like I know Tony's name, uh, fill out that Connect card at some point during the service. And we would love just to, we want to put a, a name with a face and contact you this week. And thank you for joining us. Uh, on uh, an awesome and important Sunday. So uh, this morning, uh, many of you are here, and if you've invited a coworker and are anticipating a a sermon on work, um, I just want to kind of apologize because uh, in, in, in praying this week and in, in hearing these uh, stories that uh, the friends ha- that are going to be baptized have prepared, uh, I just could not shake uh, what God was doing in each one of their lives. And so as I was praying, I was sensing from the Lord that he wanted us to go in a different direction today. And so rather than focusing on our work, um, we are going to focus on God's work. And the most important work that God does uh, in his creation is his redemption. This is why we've named our church Redemption Hill. And so I want to share what I believe is the most captivating, astounding story that gives us an unbelievable picture of God's love for us and how he wants to draw us back into a relationship with himself, okay? So that's what, that's what this uh, message is all about from Luke chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 874. Um, but, but I want you to think uh, with me about our prodigal God, and you're going to understand why I'm calling God a prodigal God uh, as we move through this story. But let me just say this. No matter if you are brand new to Christianity or you've been a Christian many years, um, this story is one that is just continually eye-opening and, and moving uh, to our hearts as we consider who God is, and what he's done for us through Jesus. So I just want to pray and just ask God to give us humble hearts to hear and to respond as he leads us to this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for the truths that we've sang to you, the words of praise and thanksgiving. And God, we are grateful that you are the kind of father that we see here in this passage. And so God, would you uh, do what you want to do in our hearts today as we look to you, not as we look to a, a person that's with a microphone, God, but as we hear from you through your words in this book, God, that you would help us to see our story in this story. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So this This story is really a set of three stories. And 
It's so important. Some people are familiar with the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost or prodigal son, okay? But they actually miss the entire heartbeat of the story and the reason why Jesus shared it in the very first place. And we, we get... The, 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 the motivation for why Jesus shared this story, these parables, and parables were just uh, stories that, that made spiritual analogies to help people understand who God is, what he's like, and what his kingdom is all about. And so it's in these first three verses that we uh, see why Jesus tells these parables. So listen carefully. Read along with me if you, if you uh, are able. This is what Luke writes in chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Who is him? Jesus. Sorry, thank you. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes, okay, that's the the religious leaders of their day, check out their response. It says, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and eats with them. And so we make a couple of observations from the outset, okay? Number one, I love what it says. It says that the the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. As we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we find is that Jesus had an absolutely magnetic quality about him, okay? And, and, And if you're God that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So like no one taught like Jesus taught. No one did the things that Jesus did, causing the blind to receive sight, causing the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. There was no one like Jesus, but it wasn't just what he said and what he did, but it was how he loved that drew people to himself. But the surprise in the story is that there were some people that actually thought this was a problem. Like, that's the only problem, is that some people thought this was a problem. And that would be the religious leaders known as the Pharisees and the scribes, and they grumbled. And essentially what they're saying is, look, surely God would not extend his love to these kind of people. Like, surely God wouldn't give these kind of people a second chance. And so they grumbled and they complained and they uh, wanted Jesus to disassociate himself with these tax collectors and, as verse 2 in some translations have in quotations, sinners. And why do they feel this way? Well, tax collectors in the first century were not the most, you know, admirable group of people, okay? Not only did they do their jobs. Here's a little work for you, okay? Not only did they do their jobs, okay, but they did their jobs in a very nasty way because they went around to swindle and steal from the people that they were collecting taxes from. So little wonder that the religious leaders didn't look too favorably upon them, but, but then they also are complaining about sinners. And the reason that some translations put that in quotation marks is the, the, Luke, the author, is trying to help us see that the only person who is not a sinner in the story is who? Jesus, exactly. So, so we all are in need of grace, even these religious leaders, as Jesus is going to help us see in the story. 
And so Jesus is, is drawing people to himself, and not everyone was excited about that. And that is why he was provoked. I mean, Jesus was the master teacher, right? And, and this, this, this comment and these grumblings uh, provoked him to tell these three very famous stories that we now have here today. And so what I want to do is this. I'm going to read the first two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But we're going to zoom in on the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. Because the themes that we see in the first two parables are echoed and amplified in the third parable. And so this is, this is how Jesus seeks to get to them with a story, with multiple stories. He says this, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so I think you can see the similarities between the two stories. I think very quickly you begin to see what Jesus is driving at. Jesus is saying the heart of God is to go after the one person that has gone astray and is lost. And it says that, that the, the shepherd and the woman who lost her coin, that there is such a valuing of that sheep. Okay, think people. Think sinners. Okay, there's such a valuing of that one person who is lost that they will search and diligently seek until, I love this word, until... Until they find the sheep and they find the coin. And this, of course, as we uh, think about the, the heart of God here, we have to ask ourselves if we have this disposition, if we have the disposition of Christ who is coming after the one like this. And so these two stories then set up this final story that presses in on everyone who heard, yes, the tax collectors and sinners who surely heard Jesus telling this story as well as the religious leaders who Jesus is softly rebuking for their lack of love. And in this story, the first truth that we have to see is that we must recognize we are hopelessly lost apart from God's grace. We are hopelessly lost apart from God's grace. This is what we begin to see as we continue reading this next parable, the parable of the prodigal son. 
Verse 11 says this, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, he's saying, give me my inheritance. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. As we think about this story, what we have are two sons. And these sons cannot be more different, okay? On the one hand, you have the older son who is highly responsible, very hardworking, uh, uh, probably a people pleaser, certainly a father pleaser, as we're going to see. And he's doing all that he's doing to try to be a good person and to honor his father. Um, but then on the other hand, you have this younger son. And the younger son is probably a carefree spirit, perhaps not as responsible. And so uh, he says, hey, I have a great idea. I'll just go to my father, and I'll just go ahead and ask for the inheritance and see if I can go and have some fun while I'm young and, you know, see what I can do out in the real world. And so that's exactly what happens. But what we may not understand as we just read this story here this morning is that for a son to do that in probably any culture would be some level of offense. But in first century Israel, for a son, older or younger, but particularly a younger son to go to a father and ask for their inheritance before the father passed would have been the most heightened offense. It would have been a heinous offense. It is, it is to say, listen to this, it is to say, I want your gifts, but I don't want you. A more disrespectful, disgraceful act could not have been committed by this younger son. And so he goes, and he takes all of his now acquired wealth his inherited wealth, and he begins to live, it says, recklessly. Look, look back in verse 13. It says, uh, he, took a far journey into a, uh, he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. This word reckless is where we get the word prodigal. It means to be extravagant in how you're spending your resources. To just be lavish, wild, out of control with, with how much you are giving away or spending. In this case, he is spending on himself. And it doesn't take him long as he's going out drinking and partying and probably mixing it up with women and having all kinds of pleasure, living a, living a hedonistic lifestyle for him to run out of money and possessions. But before we kind of say, you know, 
that's not my story, you know, like I haven't gone to my father and I don't feel like I treat God like that, you know. Um, let's just stop and acknowledge this. 100% of us are hedonists. In fact, I would argue that God made every person with a longing for pleasure. He made us to actually enjoy him and find pleasure in him. And so the question is, is not will you be a hedonist and will you pursue pleasure, but will you be like the younger son who seeks self-pleasure or will you be like a reborn son in Christ that is seeking pleasure in God. And now here's the beautiful thing. When you seek your pleasure in God, self-pleasure gets thrown in as well. I mean, as one pastor says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so there is no separation between us living for the pleasure of God and finding our own pleasure because when we actually live according to our design that God has given us, that is the path to joy. That is the path to pleasure. But this younger son didn't find that. And so he squanders all of his possessions and he says that he's in such a desperate situation that he has to hire himself out to a pig farmer. And his job is to feed the nasty, stinky pigs. And his situation is so desperate that he actually gets to the place in this time of famine with no provision that he longs. If he could just eat the pig's food, it would have at least given him something. And it says that no one gave him anything. This is a picture of desperation. And this is a picture of our lives apart from the love and grace of God. And so what was he to do? We see in verse 17, the change. It says in verse 17, but when he came to himself... He said this, how many of my father's hired servants, who are in the same state as I am right now, how many of my hired, uh, father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He's like, I'm on the, the, the verge of death here. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And so what, what's, what's happening here? Don't, don't miss that first phrase in verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, or some translation says, when he came to his senses, in other words, he came to that moment of desperation. And sometimes, listen, you wonder why you go through pain and suffering. And there's not always a, a great answer for that, right? Like, man, I've been going through it this week in multiple ways with different people. And it's hard. And, and, and I don't have the, the, all the answers. Like, why did God allow this? I, I can't give an answer to that. But I can tell you this. God can use the moments of our pain and suffering to help us see our lives and see our world with much greater clarity. 
I mean, maybe that resonates with you today because you're going through it and you're going through trials, you're going through suffering. Maybe it's self-inflicted like this younger son. Maybe it's not, but listen, pain and suffering can help us see clear. And so this son, he, he, he gains perspective. He's, he comes to his senses and, and don't just think, right? Don't just think that it's like, man, I'm hungry. I'm hungry, so I'm gonna go get some food from my father. That's not what's going on here. There's more than that. His physical hunger creates, listen to this, a relational hunger. He wants his relationship restored with his father because he sees that he has offended his father and consequently he has offended the God who made him as well. And so he begins to rehearse this story and, uh, and he begins to think about uh, what he's going to say and how he's going to acknowledge his wrongdoings before his father. And so I hope that you see that, that, that in this picture of the son, the younger son coming to his senses, we have a beautiful picture. Listen, a beautiful picture of what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is going one way, our way, the wrong way, and doing a U-turn and, and coming back to God and aligning our lives, our way, with his ways. And so in this, in this uh, picture of repentance, it reminds us that that. There has to come a point, listen to me, please hear me. There has to come a point in every single person's life where your story reflects this son and your story reflects the stories that you're going to hear today. All five of these friends are going to tell about how God has come into their life and helped them come to their senses. They're going to share about moments where they gained perspective and they saw that there was a relational disconnect between them and God and they needed to turn around and change. So first we have to recognize they were hopelessly lost apart from the grace of God. But then number two, what I love about this story, okay, like Jesus could have kind of ended right there and just said, hey, you need to wake up people and you need to come back to God. And that could have been the end of the story, except for that is not the story of God. Because the story of God is what we see when the narrative shifts. And as we see this son returning home, what we find is a loving father who keeps his eyes on the horizon and is waiting to see the silhouette of his son coming home. And so look with me in verse 20. It says, but while he was still a long way off, don't miss the details in the story, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And his father felt compassion. And his father ran. And his father embraced him. And his father kissed him. And his father then said to uh, the servants, after this confession, the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even want his rights back. He just wants some, some food and a relationship, right? But it's like the father cuts him off in verse 22, and the father says, 
to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on my son and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What we see here in this story is not only must we recognize that we're hopelessly lost apart from the grace of God, but we also must realize that God graciously pursues us with prodigal love. I mean, just in these four, like, like, just the beauty of story and the, the wisdom of Jesus to capture in these few short words the depth and the magnitude of God's love for us. So let me just share quickly six characteristics of the love of God for not just, listen to this, not just people out there, all right, but for you. This is God's story of God's love for you. Number one, the love of God is an audacious love. It's an audacious love. That word communicates that, that, that God loves with a bold kind of love. And you say, well, how do we see that in this story? Well, it says that while he was a long way off, not only was he looking for his son, but as he sees his son, he has such compassion that he pulls up his robe and he begins to run. Now, this may seem like the natural thing for us to do if you've been hoping that your son would return. But once again, in the first century, this would have been countercultural. It would have been a shot at his social standing and reputation to embarrass himself by, as an older man, to lift up this robe and to run before all of these people. And yet this is the bold love of God for his people. There is nothing, there is nothing that would stop God from running after you. God's love for you is a bold love. It is an audacious love. God is coming after us. He's pursuing us. And in his pursuit, because that's what love does, we also see that his love was gracious. Think about this. If you're in the Father's shoes, I mean, he had every right to reject his son, to maybe let his son come back to, into his midst, but then to, like, turn the cold shoulder. You know, I'm not saying that any one of you, like, have that kind of conflict resolution approach, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, like, we might expect the Father to do that, to just, like, hey, you know, you can, like, have a little bit of food, but you can have the relationship. But this isn't the heart of the Father. And this isn't the heart of God for you. God moves toward us. He runs toward us. He extends love and acceptance that we, listen, do not deserve. We do not deserve it. And if you think you deserve it, 
All right, listen, just let me just be, can I, Pastor Tanner, just be real this morning? Thank you. All right, if you think it's, you deserve it, it's because you haven't had your perspective clarified and you don't see God clearly. Because God is holy and God is perfect and God is majestic and God is glorious. And if you were to take your sinful self into his presence, you couldn't stand for a moment. This love is a love that we do not deserve. Which makes the audacity all the more audacious. You know what I'm saying? Like that he is that gracious. His grace just like levels up his audacity. I might not get through the first two points of the love of God. I mean, it's just amazing what we see here in the love of God. God's love is audacious. I hope you're with me. I hope you're alive. I hope you're becoming alive in Christ, even as we're hearing these truths about God's love. His gracious, it's affectionate, and it is forgiving. It is forgiving. The son has his script in his mind, right? Like he's thought through it. Pretty, pretty wise move. You have an important conversation. You want to think about what you're going to say. And so he just starts, I offended you. I disrespected you. I disgraced you. I took your money, and I went and spent it wildly in all of these heinous ways. But before he could stop, the father moves toward him, and he forgives him. And so I don't know about you. I don't know where you are and what your story is. But I do know that our stories are in common because people are people. And we all blow it before God, and we're proud, and we're self-seekers, and we want to look good in the sight of others for our own glory, not for the sake of God, and we are lustful, and we're greedy, and there are a thousand different problems of, and, and reflections of our brokenness, and whatever it is for you, like, and you know that, only you know that, at the depth of, like, who you are in the dark kind of reality about your heart, and God is cutting you off, and he is saying, I love you. You're forgiven. Welcome home. Welcome home. And his love is an affectionate kind of love because it says that he embraced him. And this word in the Greek, to embrace is to bury one's head into another person. And so the father is overwhelmed. He's overcome with love for his son that he buries himself in his son. And he kisses him. I mean, when you love someone... Other people don't have to be curious if you really love that person, right? It's evident. People can see it. And, and God's love is so evident, and he has made it known. Listen, he has made it known by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect God, the true God of true God, the true light of true light. God sends his perfect son to live a perfect life, to die in our place so that we would run home. And we would have God bury his head on our neck and kiss us and welcome us back in. Wow. I hope you've experienced this love of God in Christ. It's audacious. It's gracious. It's forgiving. It's affectionate. And it's also, I love this, it's also joyful. 
It's also joyful. If, if you look back at the other stories, let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Verse 5, it says that there is rejoicing. Uh, verse 6, there's an invitation for a public rejoicing when uh, the, the shepherd says, rejoice with me. And then Jesus says there is more joy in heaven in verse 7 over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance, who think they've got it all good and right. The same thing in the next story with the lost coin. And now here he's saying, let's celebrate because why? A miracle has happened. A miracle has happened. When someone returns back to God, and this is the story, and this is why we baptize people. We, we take people under the water to show that they have died to their old way of life. They've been buried with Jesus, and now they are raised to live a totally new life. And so these people have gone from death to life through, through Christ. And when that happens, listen, all of heaven rejoices, and we should be absolutely fired up about that. We should celebrate when we see someone take not just one foot in, like maybe that's you today. Let's just keep it real, right? Like maybe you and your relationship with God, it's kind of a one foot in, one foot out. But when we see someone put both feet in and say, you know what, God, I've blown it before you. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. We should go bananas, right? Like we should go, like strike up the band, play a song, throw a feast, celebrate. Come on, let's go. So listen, when... Listen, thank you. When, when these people are baptized today, let's not be silent. It's better than a Stanley Cup. It's better than Banner 18. I love the Celtics. You know what I'm saying? I mean, let's get Kyrie and Gordon back. We're going to win 18 next year. But I'm just saying, I am more, yes, that's right. I am more fired up when my friend Bobby Lewis, who we have been sharing the gospel with for four years, takes both feet in. Come on. Let's get. Thank you. Yes. Yes, it's a joyful love. And all of this, all of this, then we could summarize with this sixth characteristic that God's love is a prodigal love. It's a prodigal love. And this is just a, a wordplay as we think about how extravagant and how lavish God's love is. Just as the younger son went and spent wildly and spent lavishly and spent his resources extravagantly. God turns the tables and he puts his love on us in a lavish and extravagant way. The love of God is a prodigal love. And so we, we, might, we might expect the story to stop here. But it doesn't, because there is another brother in the story, if you remember. And so let me read this and make a couple of quick observations, and then we're going to wrap this up. Verse 25 says this, Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There we go. Come on. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry. Do you hear the echoes of verse 1? He was angry and he refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat who has devoured, uh, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are with me always. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so what we learn here is this. There are actually two ways to dishonor the father and two ways to reject the father's love. One is through a life of blatant immorality and saying, God, I have no regard for your intentions for my life, and I'm going to live it however I want to live it. But then there's another form of rejection, and that's through the pride of moral goodness. Listen, listen to what he says. I never disobeyed your command. All these years I've served you. And so the, the, the older brother is just like the Pharisees and just like many people today who think they can perform their way to God's approval and that on the basis of their performance, God will reward them and he will love them as a consequence for their good deeds. But the father says it's like, it's not about your performance because I've always loved you and all that I have is yours. And so for many people, the older brother represents the religious approach that says all other religions aside from Christianity say, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. Like I have to do enough good things. Maybe you think that today that, hey, I know I'm going to die one day. I believe in God. I believe there's a heaven and a hell and when I die, like, God is going to welcome me in because I've lived a decent life. I've lived a pretty good life. And usually what we mean by that is, like, I seem to be better than most of the people around me, and so I must be good with God. But the story says, look, that's not good enough. Because uh, the plan of moral goodness is what? This is, this is deep, all right? It is to put God in our debt. In other words, you, you owe me. Look how I've lived my life. You, you owe me. I should get in on the basis of what I've done. And that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that God has loved us. And he has accepted us. Not because of anything that we could do, but just because he loves. And so the gospel says, I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. And so listen, I don't, I don't know where you are in your journey. But this is what I do now. I know that the prodigal love of God, I know the prodigal love of God is aimed straight at you. I know that God loves you more than you can imagine. And I know that God is running after you. You say, like, well, Tanner, I don't see that. I don't feel that. L look where you are. 
You, you know what I'm saying? Like, look at your seat number. Like, God has brought you here. God is pursuing you. This is how God does it. He pursues people through people. He uses all kinds of things to grab our attention, to wake us up in hopes that we might receive and rejoice in the prodigal love of God. And so listen, I would just plead with you today. I would plead with every single one of you today. If you have yet to bring that relationship back by returning to God and receiving his amazing love for you, then would you do that today? Like the, the, the blueprint is right here. It's just right here. It's, it's recognizing your need for God. We have to say, like, God, I need you. And, and then we have to say, like, God, forgive me for the way I've lived my life before you. And now, God, I am turning back to you to live my life for you with complete devotion and a heart full of love out of the love that you have given me. And so what I want to do is just invite you, before we hear these, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to, we're going to hear some stories. But before we do that, I just want everyone to bow your head and close your eyes with me. And I just want you to take a moment, a moment of self-reflection. And for many of you, I have no doubt, you are hearing this story, and you're saying, yes, 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 God has given me that kind of love, and I belong to him. But I know for some of you, you're saying, you know what? I'm like the younger son, or I'm like the older son, and I need to return back to God. And so in the quietness of this moment, I just if that's you, if you're saying, look, I want to know God like that. I want to receive his love. I want my story to be like this story, a story full of joy and forgiveness and celebration. Then would you just, in your own words, you can say these words after me, but would you just cry out to God in, 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 your, in your own way, say, God, I need you. I trust in the work of Jesus on my behalf. And I received the gift of life that he lived and died and rose again to bring me so that I might have a relationship with you again. Let me tell you, if you, if you said those words in your heart, if you even spoke them out loud, God has made you new. He has given you life. And your story is now the miraculous story that we just read about in these pages. Let me pray. God, thank you. God, thank you for your prodigal love. God, thank you for the life that you offer us and invite us into in Christ. And so, God, would you awaken us, God, for every single one of us. God, may we come into a deeper knowledge and experience of your love. But God, in particular, in particular, I pray for every person here who needs to step into the life of Christ and to receive your prodigal love, God. Move them even in these moments to receive you as their God, their Savior, their King, their friend. In Jesus' name we pray.